President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go He will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. On today's follow-up episode, we will hear the complete oral history of Leslie Ellis. Leslie Ellis is one of Cable's leading technology journalists and advisors. She got her start writing manuals for an advertising insertion technology company and quickly graduated to writing and editing for top industry publications CED and Multichannel News and for analyst and publisher Paul Kagan. Today, as president of Ellis Edits, she is in high demand moderating panels, speaking at conferences, and continuously writing about the always changing and complex world of cable technology in a way that makes it easy for everyone to understand. It's September 9th, 2015. I'm Jana Henthorne, and I'm here with Leslie Ellis, and we're going to be doing her oral history. This is part of the Gus Hauser Oral and Video History Collection for the Cable Center. Leslie, you are a longtime friend of mine, yes. and I'm pretty excited to be able to do this, this oral history with you. This is I've known you so great. long, I don't even remember when I met you. Exactly. That's exactly. It's been a long time. So... I'm looking forward to hearing more and, and getting this into the oral history archive for, uh, for the I'm not used center. to being on this side of the questions, Jana. And we'll talk about that. Yes. So you are a journalist, an author, an editor, a tech analyst, a tech advisor to CTOs, and a translator of all things cable-related. You're really one of the most well-rounded executives <laughs> that, that I know of in the industry. I love what I do. And you just turned 50. I did. And you took up surfing. Well, I took up surfing three years ago. Okay. That's still still, still admirable. Thank you. And this is your 30th year in the cable industry. It is. So to weave those things together, let's talk about the waves of your cable career in the industry. I can tell you that I can stay on those waves much longer than I can stay on an actual wave. So yes, let's fair. Talk fair. about those things, those waves. You're from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Doylestown. Yes. Tell me about those formative years and how that prepared you for your eventual career in the cable industry. Okay. Well, we'll start with mom and dad. So my dad worked for Lazy Boy in the days of the Joe Namath commercials and the Super giving uh, Lazy Boys to all the Super Bowl champs who won. And so when I got older and got into cable, he used to love telling his friends, like, it was natural. I'm in the, the recliner business. She's in the cable business. So there was that, although I don't really think that had anything to do with it. And he actually didn't talk like that either. But um, my, and my mother was a court reporter. So she would drive down uh, into Philadelphia and tape record, re usually reverse discrimination hearings for the Navy. And then she would bring all these tapes home and she would sit there and write down the first name, like who was talking and the first few words they said. And then she'd bring the tapes home and she, her whole living room was set up with workstations with a typewriter and then a, a tape recorder on the floor that you can control the fast forward and pause and everything with your feet. 
and she would pay us 10 cents a page to help her transcribe all these tapes, which was a lot of money at the time. So it encouraged you to become a better and faster typist. So I don't know if you've ever seen me take notes in our industry, but I, I take verbatim notes. It helps me in many, many ways, but mostly so that I never misquote people. And I can always tell what the context of a conversation was, even if it's 30 years later, because that's how far back my notes go. Wow. Yeah. You're, you are a darn hard worker. I know that. Now, were there other things you did growing up that, that added to your, your cable career? Lots of jobs. Uh, lots, oh, I always worked lots of jobs because I always needed money for something. I needed money for a car. I needed money for college or I needed money for books for college. So I always, I, I, I like work. I like working. I like hard work. I like physical work. And I always had like two or three jobs at a time. It's one of those people. And, and where did you go to college? I started out at Temple University and then finished up at Shippensburg University. At the time, Shippensburg State Teachers College. But it is now, and it was when I graduated, a university in South Central Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. So everybody has a story about how they fell into the industry. And mine involves volleyball. Yeah. What's yours? Well, tell me yours first. I was refereeing a volleyball match. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the players said, hey, you did a great job doing that. Do you have a, do you have a graduate degree? And there I was, ATC. Who? Oh, okay. Picachos. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, mine was uh, far simpler than that. I was, I had gotten out of college. I was dating this guy who worked for a company that sold all of the, the things you needed at the time to build a cable system. And this was in the heyday of all the big builds. And so that company, which was called Jerry Kahn Associates, had a sister company called Telecommunication Products Corp, TPC. And they were early pioneers in the landscape of ad insertion equipment. Wow. And so they needed somebody to come in and write their hardware and software manuals for this stuff. And so this guy was was like, you should go take that job. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. It's like, you're a good writer. Everybody tells you you're a good writer. You can do it. Go do it. Do it. So I did. And here I still am. So you started an ad insertion. I did. Yeah. And then, then you moved on to the magazine business. Well, so getting back to ad insertion, I also would go then and install the equipment, like to the wonderful, oh. the smaller operators that are literally in the field where you have to, you know, you show up at the small head end and you practically push a cow out of the way, although that never actually happened to me. <laughs> and then you get in there and it's like these, you know, these big three quarter inch Sony VTRs and I'm muscling them in the door and they're like, who are you with little lady? Just me. And I'm pulling subcarrier audio cables down. And because that was back in the days when you would hear, it would, when the, the television show went to commercial, you'd hear that, and then kush, kush, and the, the, the local yes. ad would switch in. So it was uh -huh. in, those, in those days. So that was fun. It was fun. I met lots of wonderful people. And, but then you did go on to the magazine business, to the CED magazine. To C C right. Communications, engineering, right. and design, yes. And, and tell me how you got, got so that So there's job. two stories. So I had always as a child wanted to live in the great state of Colorado. Ah which is where CED, at the time when, when I moved out here in 1990, there was like 17 or 18 cable companies headquartered here. This is the cable capital of the United States, you know. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, back to get back to the very beginning, my parents divorced when I was super young. And so the normal for me was that dad would come pick us up and take us somewhere for a couple weeks every year. And one year, I was like seven or eight, he comes and picks up my brother and I in an RV filled with recliners. And lazy boy, lazy boy recliners, oh, and his parents, my paternal grandparents, which was like, yeah, road trip. So we were going to drive from Pennsylvania 
to Yellowstone and ultimately dropped these recliners off in Billings, Montana. And so we're somewhere on that journey and I'm in the back of the RV, all the way back in a recliner, tipped back, looking out the back window. It was one of those perfect Colorado blue sky days, like this, the sky was the color of your shirt and these beautiful white perfect clouds and like, Dad, where are we right now? And he said, Colorado, honey. And I said, I'm going to live here someday. So when I learned that, you know, CED was looking for a managing editor and it was in Colorado, I'm like, oh, oh, I'm interested. And so I had already had a relationship with them because this little company that made ad insertion equipment, I was also in charge of buying the ad space in the magazines. So one night we all went out to dinner, Roger Brown and Rob Stewart and a few other people. And, you know, we all were about the same age. And we were telling stories about things. And I said, this is, I told him that story because it's mm-hmm. a good one. You know, things you think are normal when you're eight. <laughs> Lazy boy reclined. You set the intention early. Yeah. And I said, I, I want to live here someday. So if anything ever opens up, I'm your man. And it did. And so they, I was out here for a two-week install in Thornton and started interviewing with, with Roger and Rob and ultimately got that job. Uh-huh. Anything more about that job interview? How did well, so this is when you like... You just you learn whether or not you're pushy or just really, really want great something. Great salesperson. Yeah, really want something. But I had had two or three interviews with them. And, it, you know, we all got along great. We were friends. And so it was like the third interview. It was a Friday. I had the weekend to find an apartment. And then I had to go back to Pennsylvania. So I'm like, okay. So I think this all is going really well. Um, and I really want this job. Could you hire me? Like, could you hire me during this meeting? so Because I, I only have this weekend to find an apartment. And they're like, uh, they look at each other like, uh, okay, okay. And they hired me. So they took a big risk on me. I didn't have a journalism degree. I don't have a double E. You know, I have a BSBA with emphasis on computer science, which was not really science. It was very different at the time. So that was that. That's how I got here. That's great. I talked my way into the job. Uh, And still doing that, I I imagine. (laughs) Well, you, you know, like. I love the work, and I still love the work, and so it was good for everybody, I think. Good. And Roger Brown was a great mentor of yours, wasn't he? Mine and many other people, yeah. So he he died in 2005 of melanoma cancer, and it was a huge blow to many of us because he was very young. But yeah, he was that guy who you'd go into his office, and he would put his like he would put his things away and look at you and have a conversation. He never multitasked. And, you know, he was the guy that we would walk around the trade shows and there was one instance where we were looking at some new amplifier development, hot, very hot at the time, Jana. <laughs> and I said something like, well, what makes it different than the way it was before? And he's like, don't you worry your pretty little head about it. And Roger went off on this guy like, I'm like, wow, I have, I feel like I have a big brother in this industry. And I did. And he was, yeah, we miss Roger very much. Many people do. Yes, says. they do. Right. He's a huge following. So your first NCTA show or your first cable show yeah. was in 1990. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was so that it was like a, at your first show? Yeah, there was like one week on the job. Oh. And they're like, come on, we're going. We have to write the, we have to do a daily. Like, what's a daily? What's the thing they slide under people's hotel room doors at the show? Oh, okay. So we get there and Rogers are divvying up what tech, tech sessions were happening here and who was having a press conference. And so he's like, okay, Leslie, here's your worksheet for today and go. Okay, so, but then what do I do? Like, what 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 happens? And he's like, go take really good notes and come back and come back. You know, we have to go to press at around five. 
So come back and you need, I need you to write these things up as little items for tomorrow's daily. Okay, got it. So I go to the first one and it's like this dark room with this engineer standing <laughs> in the front of the room talking about, I have no idea what he was talking about. And the room, the conditions were like, I had eaten and it was like, oh, oh. I was starting to fall like, feel like I was gonna fall asleep. So I thought, okay, you know how to stay awake. Take, you know how to take really good notes. And I cracked right. out my portable computer, which was, you know, at the time they were like 35 pounds. They're more like luggable. Right. And I cracked it open and started doing the, the notes thing. And, you know, have I told you about the hyper listening thing that happens with verbatim no. notes? No, what's that? So it, 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 I just learned this over the years because I still take notes this way. But there, a connection happens between your fingers, your ears, and your brain such that you can't not focus even if you want to, like your brain will not let you get to, oh, what should I get for dinner tonight? Oh, I need to make an appointment for, to take the dog to the vet. You're so locked into that, what that person is saying that you're, you, you're just totally focused on it. So I love that part because I'm very easily distracted. So, anyway, so I went in and started taking verbatim notes and then was able to go back to the press room and look at the notes and pick through it and find a way, find the lead and write a little couple pieces for the next day's daily. And I loved it. It was it was really fun. It still is. Now that your court reporting early yeah, days. Yeah, that's what mom, dime a page. Right, right. That's where that came right. back. A dime yeah. a page. Right. Came back in and you're hyper in and you changed that into hyper listening. Yeah, I still do. That's neat. It's that's great. Neat. It's a great skill. Now you told me earlier when we were talking about some things that you, you had a great story you told me about Jim Chittick's. Oh, can you can you Yes. Well, I mean, what happens when you don't have the ability to take verbatim notes as you use the reporter's notebook. A little skin with the seam, the thing on the top. Mm -hmm. And so I had to interview Jim Chittix about something. And I had such a platonic but a crush on him because that year, right around that time, he had been named CED Man of the Year. And, mm -hmm. you know, he has that very statuesque way of speaking and his pause, uses the pause very well. And I was kind of petrified to interview him. But, you know, I, it was my assignment. So I go and talk to him. And I'm kind of mesmerized by his speech and everything. And I'm writing, and I think I'm writing, and I think I'm writing, and I get back to the person. And my notes say, and the most important thing is. That was it? That was it. So it was kind of, it was kind of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's my one of many Jim Chittick stories. But I also have the first. Uh, yeah, please tell me the yeah, post. The, the post while you were out. Remember the pink while you were out messages? Uh-huh. One day I came back from lunch. I think and I still I, have those. So one day I came back from lunch and there was a Leslie, while you're out, Jim Chittick's called like for me. So I framed it. I still have it. It's not pink anymore. It has faded over the years, but I still have the first while you're out phone message I ever got from Jim Chittick's. That's great. Yeah. And you also worked for Paul Kagan. I did. Well, that Was that yeah. after the CED? CED and then Multichannel News, Multi which is where okay. I learned news writing and Okay. Also very fun. And then wanted to learn how to do financial analysis in that whole side of the world. So I was lucky to be picked up by Paul Kagan, who I think is one of the industry's greatest storytellers of all time and a lovely, lovely man. Great. And then you started your own company. Right. I started Ellis, that, Ellis um, Edits. Ellis Edits. Mm -hmm. Yes. EE. Okay. Um, I started that, I don't know, like, I think this year, is, I found out from LinkedIn that this year is my 15th anniversary of that. I start getting all these congratulations, congratulations. Oh, thank you. I had forgotten. But it was right around this time in uh, whatever year that was, 99, okay. 2000. And, wh and what do you do at Ellis Edits? 
Well, it started out that I wanted to do... I'm, 15 years ago. 15 years ago, my, my rules of engagement, and I'm sorry I'm going to say curse word now, but my rules of engagement were interesting work for people who aren't assholes. And, you know, you try to stay true to that. Usually you fall down on the interesting work part because you come, become friends with everyone and they need you to do things that aren't always interesting. But I wanted to do that. I wanted to um, help people to understand things that, are, that can be ridiculously complicated and wanted them to understand technology even if they didn't have as much interest as a as an engineer. Mm -hmm. That's that's where I live. That's what I do. So so I started out with a column and I'm still writing for CED. And you know, I went through my actual Rolodex and picked out the cards of the people who I had really enjoyed working with over, over the years and called them and said, I'm on my own now. I'm this is what I want to do. Can I is there any way I can do you need anything like that? And the, the first one was Ray Katz at Bear Stearns. He and I had always helped each other because he under, didn't understand some of the stuff in tech and I didn't understand the stuff of Wall Street. And so I called him and he was like, I think that's a great idea. And so he was my first really big client and for a long time until the end of them. That was a very sad day. And uh, you've also authored books. Yep. It did, how, how many? Um, I think, I don't know, three or four. They're all, they're not like book books. They're not like, you know, What's the one we just read? Bill Bryson or, you know, actual books, but they are kind of like textbooks. I've done two illustrated dictionaries with the fabulous Stuart Schley. Mm, Stuart Schley. There's no, hardly, there's few people that are more fun to work with than Stuart Schley. We also did a, a field guide to broadband. So it's those kind of like illustrated dictionaries of tech stuff that were fun to do. I think that's the only books I've written. Maybe there's more. I don't know. Uh, and you you are also a speechwriter, both for yourself, yeah. and we'll talk about your public speaking later, but both for yourself and for others. And so yeah. allow me to tell the, the Jim <laughs> Blackley story, okay. just, just from this year, because yeah. it's so great. It, uh, so uh, Jim Blackley won a Vanguard Award. The CTO this, of uh, Charter, yes. Yes. And he got up and started to speak and talk, did the usual, uh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid, petrified. I'm petrified of, of, of public speaking. Gripping. And, and yeah. it turned out to be the funniest speech. It, it was, was great. even upstage Josh Sapan. Um, and I was listening to it so and I thought, oh, yeah, indeed. And I thought, hmm, that, that just has a hint of Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> so I texted you. And said, did you have anything to do with Blackley's speech? And you said, texted me back and said, yep, <laughs> I helped him write it. He and wrote it. I just kind of added some special sauce. But, but yeah. you are an, a, a fabulous speech writer. That, well, that was thank a you. great that was, story. That was big fun. Um, and you're also a much sought after public speaker. Uh, and in fact, to the point where when the NCTA show schedule comes out, I, I kind of groan inwardly <laughs> if I'm if I have my panel at the same time as yours because like oh not again um, but you, like how many panels have you moderated Leslie okay so somebody asked me that last year and the number as of the middle of last year was like over two hundred but you know moderating one on one Q and A's video interviews all of that's it's up there it's yeah up there. yeah you're you I like doing it. Well, well, yeah. So, what tips do you have for me? On, on oh, what are your about good, moderating? Good okay, moderating. Definitely, tips. like how much time you have. Okay, so first of all, 
people who say I'm just the moderator should be removed from that position immediately because you know a panel that has a, a weak moderator it's it's a it's a role that's important to the conversation mm -hmm. uh, never read someone's bio you're just wasting time mm -hmm. everyone has the bio in their books mm -hmm. if someone's talking too much tell them like Harry you're talking too much okay you have to stop now or stop yeah stop. you taught me that one stop you're talking too much you need to let somebody else talk those are three you want more no that's good. go where the no. conversation is going the, right you know have your questions make sure they're really good questions and then if somebody goes somewhere else go with them because they might they might be even more interesting than your really interesting question good tips thank you you're welcome and you and you have some uh rock star folks that you emulate when you moderate, right? I think who, whose styles do I try to incorporate? I do. Yes, um, thank you for redoing that question <laughs> right. for me. <laughs> Charlie Rose. Okay. Ellen, Gener Ellen DeGeneres, uh, John Stewart, and uh, 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 Terry Gross from Fresh Air on NPR. Mm. I'm also a big fan now of, what's her name, the funniest lady on television, uh, Amy Schumer, oh. National Treasure. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Fallon. So I, I kind of cleave towards funny things, but also I also really like how Charlie and Terry interviewed. Like they just have a way of making people feel comfortable and they do the research such that they know what they're, they know they lead the conversation gently and, and I think masterfully. Um, so masterfully. I, I study interviewing. I think it's a, it's an art and a science and a talent that. Is, and, and I would say that you've mastered it too. I, I'm trying. Yeah, it's great. And uh, you also write, and I think you mentioned it before, you write a very popular column for the industry called Translation Please. Yes. Which is now in its more or less 15th year. Right, right. Do you have a, do you have a favorite column? I don't know that I have a favorite column. I have a favorite topic, which is, um, and all of the CTOs or technology people watching this who know me know what it is. It's the upstream path. So the upstream path of the any cable system is 5% or less of their total available capacity, which it used to be not a big deal because there's not much, you click your mouse to go get a web page, but the bulk of it is the web page coming back. You know, you're part of a telephone call coming out of your house is not a big deal because voice is small. But now when you think about, oh, I'm gonna attach my webcam to, my assistant Sarah did this last year. She attached her webcam through her Wi-Fi to her chicken incubator so that we could all watch the chickens hatch. That's video, that's big, and it's coming out of the upstream path. So I spend a lot of time fussing and fretting and worrying about the state of the cable industry's upstream path to the point where the CTOs are like, give it a rest, okay? Let it go, let it go. But you, what you do with all of these is you, you make the cable technology understandable for the lay person. Yeah, I, try, I say it as a, a for people with less of a natural interest than engineers. That's what I try to do. Like, here's what it is. Here's why it matters. Here's what doesn't matter. Here's how much it costs, whatever the theme is of that. Well, I'll look out for your next upstream, <laughs> upstream path. <laughs> I've done um, like so many of them. It's, it's kind of- And they're all online now too. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. Translation-please.com. So you um, also, just change, change gears just a little bit. You're, you are a prolific volunteer and fundraiser, both in the industry and out of the industry. Mm -hmm. You want to talk to me about a couple of those fundraising projects? I don't know how I got, I don't know how I fell into fundraising, but I, 
I found out like some, not to break. Colleen Abdullah would say, here's what I bring to the table, fundraising, rather than saying, here's what I'm good at. But I don't know, I just found it. I, I started with um, the Avon breast cancer stuff. And in, the, in two years, I was with the uh, Save Second Base team for, for several several years. And mm-hmm. I uh, in the last year that they had it, I was personally number one in the Rocky Mountain region. And the team was number two. And then when Roger died, he had four kids that were about to be of college age. And so... I put together a cable team called Run for Roger, and we raised $10,000 for each of the four kids for their college, which really helped them a lot. And so um, that's that's amazing. Yeah. That's great. I'm doing one right now called uh, Healthy Bee, Be Healthy, that is to raise money for a uh, beekeeping associate or like a the biggest convention for beekeepers west of the Mississippi later in well, it's early October. Great. Um, now, and can you talk a little bit about what you've done to bring women into the technical side of the industry? Oh, yeah. Um, you, you've, you've been a speaker. You've been a fundraiser. You've volunteered. Yeah. So it's mostly through um, the, there's a wonderful group of women in the industry who are all recipients of the um, SCTE and WICT annual Technology Woman of the Year. And Nomi Bergman is one of them. And every year she organizes this dinner at the SCTE and every year it gets one person bigger. And we talk, we talk, 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 talk about how to fix the top, the top and the bottom of the problem. So the bottom of the problem is still on our watch, fewer and fewer young girls are interested in the sciences and technology. And so we're trying to, to work that, which I can tell you about. And then on the top side is there's, you know, fewer, well, the numbers show that if you have more of a 50-50 blend of women and men on boards of directors, you have better financial results but it's still kind of an uphill battle. So mm-hmm. as a group of women, we try to work the top and the bottom of those two problems now, actively. You tell me a little more about what the programs are for, for bringing people into the bottom. Yeah, so the, the one I'm most involved with was one that um, Daniel Howard of SCTE and Sharita Cesar, Cesar, Cesar sorry, Sharita, and I uh, dreamed up at one of the national shows like three or four years ago, we were saying like, Okay, we're starting to do a better job of an, as an industry at throwing money at this this entity called FIRST. And I can never remember what it stands for, but it's the robotics program that's now global for high school students and uh-huh. to get them involved and interested in in the sciences and technology. So she's, she's like, what if we, I mean, we can give them money, but every cable operator is in market. We have feet on the street. Like, why are we not helping with people too? So we've started this, this entity that would still very new, but it's called Cable First. And the idea of it is to get more of the industry in more markets with their own people in the teams mentoring the kids, like the engineering side doing the actual build, and then the rest of it. I mean, they all have a website. They need to be doing fundraising. They need to do marketing, business plan. All that stuff still needs to happen mm-hmm. as part of that experience. So we're trying to build that out. And I believe that you're instrumental in the huge success of the Rocky Mountain Tech It Out project. And that's a national model for WICT. And well, I, I can't take credit for that. That was Rebecca Rusk Lim's baby. She's the one who took it and said, why are we just doing like an hour? Let's do all day. Let's blow it out. And so she set the bar really high. Uh-huh. And we've tried to match her at really high every year since. So last year we had it at a new place. It was we had to program all the screens around the wall, and it was it was quite a to-do. It's fun. Yeah. But great opportunity, and, and there are high school students that come to that, yep. as well as young women in the industry. Yep. So yep. we're reaching out not only to women already in the industry, but 
yeah, to the next generation. Yes, next, next generation women in high school who we hope will be into yeah. the cable product. Right. Exactly. Um, Denver loves cable. Oh. I still have my <laughs> button that says Denver loves, loves cable, and you were instrumental in that. Well, that too. was another one with Rebecca and oh. Marwan and let's see if I can remember when Don Dolcinos and Marwan, uh, Mike Hayashi and me, we, we you know, Denver Cable used to be a really big thing. Like right. I told you, 16 it, well, or 17 companies headquartered here. And then one by one, consolidation, they started, everyone kind of moved east. And so one, it was like the SCTE was here one year and we wanted to have a party, but we couldn't figure out how to do it. So we're like, well, let's, we formed a little company called Denver Loves Cable LLC. And that way we were able to find, find sponsorships and throw a cable party like the good old days with like 10 or so sponsors. And it was great. So we still have this this informal group called Denver Loves Cable that is the core Denver Cable community. You're part of it, Jana. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All of us here are. And you don't have to be in Denver to be in Denver Loves Cable. I'm a button-wearing member <laughs> of Denver Loves Cable. Those are cute. Uh, again, this is uh, a little bit uh, outside of your industry career, but you also co-founded a wonderful book club called the Literati Sisters. And yes, I, I've I been did, a, I've Jenna. been a member of that for since the, since the very beginning. Since the very beginning, which I don't remember when it was, but it was it was nineteen eighty eight nine no, something like that. I wasn't even here yet. Uh, it was probably like oh nineteen ninety nine. Sorry, yes, yes. yes. Right. Let's go ten years. Yeah, right. Yeah, Susan Marshall, Ruth Warren, and I. I don't know how, why, or how it started, but Ruth was leaving Jones at the time, and. I don't know, we just decided to start a book club, and here we are that many years later, the Literati Sisters.net. Mm -hmm. What's our next book? Are you, I know you're going to ask me about, it's like the guy, the one about the I French uh, deaf girl and the German little boy. Anyway, I'll think of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's supposed Good. to be you great. Can tell, you can it's supposed tell to be great, me. like Fugitive Peace is great. Ah. <laughs> Leslie, you, you are just... Garden variety, type A. You think so? Yes, yes. Overachieving personality. Um, and you said but to do me, I have the personality that goes with it? No, you're a nice person. Thank you. You, um, in my opinion, <laughs> you, um, you told me that uh, you like to be involved in causes where you think you can make a difference. Yeah, because I, I don't have any time, right? I, exactly. So, yeah. And... You mentioned your fundraising for bee, bees before, yeah. but you're also a beekeeper. Yeah. You made a documentary about I did. Um, the plight of the bee population. What? Why? Why bees? Okay, so uh, here's my little my little speech. So one out of three things on your plate wouldn't be there without the honeybee. They're responsible. For, they're the world's number one pollinator. Uh, Everything from apples to, to zucchini, let me try that again, apples to zucchini are pollinated by honeybees, and they are dying at a rate of 50 to 60% per year, every year since 2008. Nobody knows why. There's lots of theories. I mean, every week I get 10 different Facebook posts of new theories of why the bees are dying. So I was reading about it and decided to, in 2011, um, became a beekeeper. And then also in that same year, I got into it so big time that I uh, I called a friend of mine who I'd done a cable documentary about that I had filmed here, Jana, Cable at 60. 
and we we had never met David Nappy. We'd never met before that day, before we did all that shooting. And I loved working with him. So I called him up and I said, I'm doing this crazy beekeeping thing. And the people are really weird, like are kind of weird. And I think we should do something. Like I think we should do a, a movie or something. And the one takeaway that the movie was hopefully dispensed, the movie is called Bee People, is that uh, we need more backyard beekeepers because if we can get a beehive every two miles, there's a shot at sustainable pollination because bees pollinate within a two to three mile radius of their beehive. Uh-huh. So we just, we made this kind of series of vignettes about weirdo beekeepers and strange things. Well, I've that seen it. It's, okay. it's great. So, thank you. It's so that, that was the point of that one is a beehive every two miles. That was like one way you can make a difference is to encourage more people to become backyard bee, beekeepers towards this end of which you are, which I am. I'm a fifth year beekeeper. We just did our honey harvest last weekend. Yeah. So, um, so that's someplace that you can make a difference. Um, what else? What else are you passionate about, and you okay, put so your energy into? I, I know where you're going with this, and so let me see if I can put. It. So we were talking at lunch today about um, all the things that are happening on the news with gun control and police officers being shot, and it's, you know this horrible story after horrible story. And what I noticed about it is that whether whatever side you're on, and I'm not really on either side, but they are mad as hell. I mean, no matter who, if it's the NRA side or the the mom, like the gun control mom side, they're mad as hell. And so whenever I get drawn into that kind of conversation, my response is to say, I will have this conversation with you when you can recite to me the four basic rules of gun safety in order. Because they're so simple. You know, and I think if everybody knew them the same way they knew the alphabet, wrote, stop, drop, and roll, stop, drop, whatever and roll. your thing is, that you, right. you'll never forget it, we would have far fewer gun accidents. Tell me. I was hoping you'd say <laughs> Tell me the four. Let me tell you the four. So one is treat every gun like it's always loaded. It's a deadly weapon. Don't fool around. Uh-huh. Number two is never point a gun at something you do not intend to destroy, which builds on the first one. Number three, in my opinion, is the, the most important. Like if you could produce a genie out of a bottle who said, you can have one of these, but not all three, and I will blink my eyes and everyone in the world will know this one basic rule. It is um, never put your finger on the trigger until you are on target and ready to fire, which if everybody knew that, so you put your finger out like this on the side of the thing until, you, uh-huh. until you're on target. Okay. So if everybody did that, if we could do that, that one thing, just think of the number of unfortunate accidents we could prevent at discotheques involving the male reproductive organs. <laughs> so, <laughs> happens all the time, Jana. Never put your finger. Hold on. So, there's a number four. There's number four too. And number four is look at your target and beyond because bullets go through things. Now, don't you think if everyone knew those four things, you don't even have to handle a gun to know those four things. They would so, make a difference. I think it would make a big difference. Yeah. So memorize those and I will ask you in a few months time. In, I'll work I'm not on kidding. That. I'll okay. work on that. I, I've just got stop, drop and roll <laughs> from second grade. Uh, Gosh, you, you have been honored by the industry for your uh, expertise and your executive presence. Um, you've gotten a bunch of awards. Let me see. You've, you've gotten uh, Vanguard, I think, in 2005, and uh, Wicked Rocky Mountain Woman in Technology in 2007. And then you were the Technology Woman of the Year for SCTE and WIP. 
right? Yeah. And Technology Communications Magazine. A um, couple of favorite experiences from being on so, the stage. So, you know, it's, it's just weird like to sit here and go, yes, I was, yes, I was. It's an honor and, and it's a surprise every time. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful to everyone who made that happen. But yeah, do I have a, a favorite moment? So yeah, I do. The, when the, um, the, the one that happened here, the WIC Tech Woman of the Year, I had gone, I went to Target beforehand and bought all these little sunglasses, little glasses, and I put tape on the nose. Mm-hmm. And then I gave them out to everybody in the audience who was tech. So that when I got up, they all kind of stood up and they had their nerd glasses on. And then I went up and said, here's, <laughs> I don't know if you know what happens when, um, when you win an award like this, but here's what happens. They put you in a room, they put lots of makeup on your face and they make up your hair and they put a bright light, in, <laughs> right, put a bright light on you. And then they ask you questions so complicated that you realize you haven't had a deep thought in a really <laughs> long time. Uh-huh. For example, one, and this is true. I mean, this really happened. One of the questions was, have you ever used your morals, ethics, or convictions to solve a business problem? To which I said, I was never convicted. Got a good laugh. <laughs> that's a good one. It's my favorite that's, of all time. That's good. That's a good one. Um, now, you have a tech lab in your house, I know. Because at the I've read, office, I've, yeah. Yeah, at, at your office, right. Not at your house, at your office. And I've read your columns about that. And mm-hmm. what a great service for those of us not in the technology sector. Um, how did you get that tech lab started? It was, it's, well, here's why. I'm, I'm come from a long line of gifted warriors. And, you know, every few years in this industry, starting with microwave, something comes along, microwave. It's going to kill the cable industry. Then it was telco video. It's going to kill the cable industry. Then it was satellite. It's going to kill the cable industry. Like, oh, my God. Every time it happens, like, oh, no. It's going to kill the cable. So then this over-the-top video started to happen. Uh-huh. And you didn't need a microwave antenna in your back bedroom. And you didn't need, you know, a satellite dish. You didn't need telco whatever. You could go buy these things. They're like 99 bucks. So... My assistant, Sarah, the lovely Sarah Dirksy, and I went out. And actually, before that, another friend's daughter who was interning, Kirsten Hull, Nicholas, helped me build it. But Sarah runs it. And the idea was, well, let's just see. Is it, how, how is it really better? Is, it, is this going to kill the cable industry? And that's, we've been looking at this stuff for four or five years now. And, you know, last year with the Google Chromecast, the, the Kindle Fire Stick, uh, you know, there's such a profusion now of 50 to $99 streaming sticks mm-hmm. that we kind of declared the hardware side of it game over and we're shifting our focuses now onto the Internet of Things. Oh. And we're looking at it because it's such a hypey category of you know, things that are Internet connected mm-hmm. and speaking to each other. That We decided that we would look at it through two prisms. One is, um, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Some really funny ones like the selfie sombrero. And then the other ones that are wait, like, wait, okay. wait, selfie sombrero? Oh, yeah. It's this bright pink, sparkly, huge sombrero that was designed for Lady Gaga. And it has a drop-down bright, spark- sp- <laughs> bright pink, sparkly thing that holds an Acer tablet so that you, so it's already attached to your hat. Oh. Clever. And then we also look at things that are plausible. Like, oh, I would, I would do that. That's how we were slicing it. Okay. It's fun. It's and. It's, again, great, great for your tech translation work. Yeah, it is. It all feeds together. Right. So what what do you see as a lasting legacy of the cable industry or the, or the legacy of the cable industry? 
Well, you know, you and I have talked about this before because you're very involved with the people that are on the customer care side of things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have your cable life and then you have your non-cable life. And usually your people in your non-cable life hate cable in some way, right? We, li we are living in the era of... Unfortunately. Right. And so I'm so tired of it. But so the nice thing is the work I'm doing now inside some of the operators, I truly believe, like it would be very hard to be convinced me otherwise that it's going to get a lot better. Thank God. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's going to be the le I hope that the legacy is that, you know, in some period of time, 10, 20 years, people don't, or maybe they remember laughingly how bad it used to be, mm -hmm. but that our industry is, gets much, much better at care and user experience. It just, it seems like it's inevitable based on, based on the work I see happening by so many people, but the, the chasm between the two is still very large and disappointing. I, I would, I would agree with you, Leslie. And, and I know a lot of people are working hard really to, hard to make that and they mean it really it's not hard. just a job it's right yeah what what do you see as uh, cable's impact on society or what what impact has cable had on society well that's a, that's I mean, a big question it is and I'll, I'll hone in on one side of it i okay. think that the the biggest thing that's happened since i've been in cable is high-speed data slash broadband so when that happens, I mean, Doug put in the first cable modem in the United States in 1994 or something like that. And at that time, this is at Viacom Cable, they, they were doing focus groups and people were saying things like, um, and especially people who were finally able to use their broadband connection to speak to their family in halfway around the globe, you know, saying things like, you'll have to pry it out of my dead fingers. And mm -hmm. so I think that that broadband pervasive connectivity, which has given rise to so many other you know, industries and companies, Netflix wouldn't exist without broadband. Right. You know, so right. I think that's that's the big one for me. Okay. Um, let's talk about you personally and legacy. What What would you, I know you're only 50, so you have lots, <laughs> you. lots of time left. Uh, but but uh, what would you like your legacy to be in the cable industry? That's a hard question. I mean, I guess I, I, will, I want people to know that I help, I help people to understand complicated stuff. I don't know. Like, oh, she made me understand. Like one time Glenn Britt, dearly departed Glenn Britt, told me that he had gone into a meeting after having read one of my columns and they had this, it was, the meeting was about it, how to expand their VOD offering and how many qualm modulators they were going to need. And he was like, I had just read your article. Thank God. I understood what was happening in the meeting. Like, oh, that's awesome. That, that kind of thing. However you put that in a few words, that's what I want my legacy to be. Okay. What, what is it that you think that uh, people in the general public, Jane Q public, what, what do they not know about the cable industry? You know what astounds me the most is that people don't know that cable operators have to pay the programmers for the content. Like when all this, the scuffles happen, like we're taking, you know, X channel off the air. It's, it's like when you talk to taxi cab drivers, sometimes they have no idea that. They, so that's one. The, uh, that the care is going to get better is another. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, people often, uh, people from outside of the industry who want to be part of the industry kind of snark on us that we're too chummy and too clubby. That's not um, intentional. That's because the operators never have competed with one another. They, they chased, you know, fr franchises right. state by city by city, town by town. And so as a, as a direct result, especially on the engineering side, um, they... They tend, like for instance, they split the load of the work. So like Cablevision went first with network DVR. Uh -huh. Comcast went first with uh, Doxus 3. 
Time Warner went first with Switch Digital Video. So they and they and they come together, and because they're not competitors, they say, "Well, here's what worked with that, and here's what didn't work, and here's what." So they're able to share the load of what needs to be learned and experienced and, and put into action. I think that's pretty cool, and I yes. hope it stays that way. Mm-hmm. Make uh, more innovation that way. Yeah, right. and and sharing with you, like you know. How long we don't even know how long we've known each other. It's like you, you you get to it's the same faces, but it's not like anyone wants to be exclusionary. It's just that you I've I've now seen you here every year for thirty years. We've become friends, right? Or you know whatever. That's it right. Is. That's right. So, what haven't you done yet? What's your next big dream? Well, Jenna, my next big dream is to be on the Jimmy Fallon show. <laughs> the tech. No, I, I'm a tech I'm, translator. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm I am a huge fan of. Jimmy Fallon and lots of comedians, and um, I just have a hankering to to do comedy. I don't know. I also don't have the guts to do it, so you know, maybe that and the surfing go together. Exactly. That's that's a what do they call that? BHAG, big hairy audacious goal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. it. That's that's one. Yeah. That's good. Except but, I heard but, it as B E E, and I am a BHAG. But Leslie, if not you, then who? Right. Right. That's a great dream. Leslie, it's been great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for coming to the Cable Center and doing your oral history as part of the Gus Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Thank you for having me, Jenna, and having any interest at all in hearing my weird little journey through the industry we call cable. My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you. You've just heard the oral history of Leslie Ellis. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>